This week's sermon is a standalone sermon that piggybacks off of last week's sermon. Generally, we preach verse by verse. Um, Ben's in Ephesians. Uh, He has been for a while. And usually when I preach, I'll go back to Romans and preach through Romans. But this is just a standalone one-time sermon. Last week, Ben preached from Ephesians 4, where we found that the life of holy obedience, the holy walk, is the good life. That was the phrase that he used last week, the good life. And so that's the title of this week's sermon, Psalm 128, The Good Life. What that means is it is not a drudgery, it is not a bummer, it is not a buzzkill. We're not missing out on what's really better by obeying God. In conclusion, last week we found that the journey of faithful obedience is designed by God to be a huge blessing for his people. I've had the privilege this semester of studying the Psalms at a level that I've never previously gotten to. I'm working on my master's degree, and it's been a privilege for eight weeks to get to just dive into the Psalms in a way that I haven't gotten to before. And as we engaged Ephesians 4, I couldn't help but notice the many similarities to the Psalms. So since this week is a standalone sermon, it seemed fitting to consider how the Psalms reinforce last week's conclusion that there is a good life, and it is found in faithful obedience. So here's the point I hope to make from the Psalms this morning. I'm going to start with the end and then go back and see if it's actually true. Here's the point that I want to make from the Psalms this morning. I'm going to make the point. We'll go back. So here it is. So you ready? God wants you to be happy. Is your mind blown? You glad you're here this morning? God wants you to be happy. Like really happy. I've spent eight weeks in this intensive study of the Psalms, and that has been the biggest point that I've walked away with. And I'm not talking about the self-abased martyr kind of happy where you aren't really happy, but you say that you are. How's it going? God is good. Your voice and your countenance says completely otherwise. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine happiness. God's desire for you to be happy trumps any attempts that you have ever personally made toward happiness. For some of us, this is just a reminder. You might be like, oh man, that's good. I'm glad that God wants me to be happy. For some of you, you really need to hear this because your walk with Jesus is significantly lacking in the joy department. We're in this weird season of the year where we we finish school and we... We tell ourselves that somehow that's going to bring relief, and then all the kids are home, and that relief that you were anticipating is not quite there, and frankly, I'm seeing a lot of people that are kind of frustrated, maybe a little low in the joy department, I love my children, but they're driving me nuts, kind of a thing, and I think this is a song that steadies us, and that helps us, and that encourages us in these seasons, because we're always looking for, oh, we're going to get some relief, oh, there's going to be something, it's going to be better. But in fact, it's very good, the blessings that we have in Christ. So God wants you to be happy. Some of you, it's a reminder. For some of you, you really need it because you're lacking joy in your life. For some of you, you might be sitting there thinking, Scott has officially lost it. It sounds like he's taken a page out of the prosperity gospel. God just wants you to be happy. Let's not talk about the ugly stuff like sin. I promise you that's not what's happening. If you're sitting there responding in your mind the, the way, frankly, that I would have before I studied the Psalms the way I've gotten to, 
You're probably thinking, no, 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 God wants us to be holy. Not happy. They're not different. Like, you can't have one without the other. You can't be genuinely happy without being holy, and you cannot be holy and be miserable. That's not how it works, and so that's what we're exploring this morning. God wants you to be happy. Let's see if the Psalms prove it. Look at Psalm 128, verse 1. Psalm 127 and 128 are really an outline for the good life. It's actually a phrase that a bunch of people who have studied the Psalms thoroughly, they say, this is the good life. This sort of is a, is a little summary of what the good life looks like. So that's what we're looking at this morning in Psalm 128. Verse 1, it says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, and walks in his ways. When you break open your original Hebrew texts to understand more deeply what these words actually mean in their original context, the word blessed is translated happy. That's what it means. Happy. So happy is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. So what we need to notice here, first thing off the bat, is that happiness is contingent Upon two things for the life of the believer. For the one who claims to be a follower of God in Christ, happiness is contingent upon two things. The first is fearing the Lord. The second is walking in his way. So let's start with fearing the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let's consider what it isn't. Turn to 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18. It's going to be almost all the way to the back of your Bible. You got three Johns, Jude, and Revelation, if you remember the song. We're looking at what it isn't because there are two types of fear in Scripture. And so if we believe that our happiness is contingent upon properly fearing the Lord, we have to make sure we don't have a wrong definition. So 1 John 4.18 tells us what we're not talking about. 4.18 says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So you could read that verse next to the statement I opened with, that your happiness is contingent upon fearing the Lord, and be like, whoa, 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 that doesn't add up. And the reality is there's two kinds of fear in the Lord, and this is the kind of fear that we're not talking about. When we say to fear the Lord, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that's not how we fear God. To be clear, that is not how we fear God. We don't fear punishment if we are in Christ. That's not what motivates you in a life of holiness. God is going to smite me. Mm, I do not want to mess with him. He's going to smite me. He's going to punish me. He's going to step on me. He's going he's to... No. That is not how your heavenly Father desires for you to view him. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't fear punishment if we're in Christ. We don't fear God's rejection. So what is the fear that we're talking about? Turn over to Nehemiah 1.11. If you like. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it out loud. Nehemiah 1.11 says this. O Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Those who delight to fear in your name. So clearly we're talking about two different fears. One is, is there's a love that casts out fear. We don't want that kind of fear in our lives as we follow God. But then there's this other fear that's delightful, apparently. Delightful. We should delight in and enjoy fearing God. What does this mean? Let me, let me kind of paint a scenario to explain what I think this means. I think that it means that when the almighty creator of all things created, take that, take that phrase into account, the almighty, all-powerful creator of all things created, the one who hung the stars, named the stars, keeps them there, the one who sustains every breath that you have ever taken and blesses you with another one after that, every breath being borrowed, the most, the one true God. When that God takes a special interest in your life, there is no room for arrogance. So some of us may not believe he actually takes a special interest in our lives. And we should. When that God, the creator of all things created, takes a special interest in your life, there is no room for arrogance. There's no room to be cavalier with your creator. Rather, there is awe and respect that is delightful. He is here for me. He's here for us. How remarkable that we gather and he is here to join us. How remarkable that this word is alive How remarkable that he's for us. I am a sinner. He gave his son for me, a sinner. And not only that, he's done so for all sinners who would believe in him. He cares about the little details of your life. He cares about the argument that you had with your spouse this week. He cares about your dynamics with your children. He cares about your dynamics at work. He cares about the things you fear. He cares about the things that you're worried about. He cares about what makes you happy. He cares about true joy being in your life. When that is the reality, what a delight. What a delight to fear the name of the God who is with us and cares about the details of our lives. What undeserved favor for the one who has saved us. I delight to fear your name, O God. I don't run around worrying that he's going to smite me and, and punish me and wipe me out and disapprove of me. He's for me, not against me. This is what it means to fear the Lord. This is what the psalmist is talking about. Happy is everyone who delights to fear the name of their father who has redeemed them from all unrighteousness. So that's the kind of fear that it takes to be genuinely happy according to God and his word. But it's not just fear. Go back to Psalm 128 verse 1. It says, Blessed... Happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. It's not just the fear of the Lord that brings happiness. The other part of the equation is happy is everyone who walks in his ways. This is where so many get lost and where so many fall off the wagon. I love God. I love the idea of someone who will save me from hell. Yes, That makes me happy. But walking in his ways? Really? Don't do this. Don't do that. Resist your urges. Flesh is bad. I mean, I love God. I fear God, but walk in his ways. Do what he says. 
And then those who ask such questions at this point, which, guys, it's not hard for us to imagine this person. Our community is full of people who say they love God, but the walking with Him and the obedience part is so much harder for them. It's harder for me. This could be me on any given Tuesday. Like, oh, Lord, I love you, but I don't want to do what you tell me to do today. It's hard. I believe that maybe not doing it will bring me greater joy than doing it. That's what's going on there. So many fall off at this point. Yes, I love God, but doing what he says. So there's this question that's posed, which the question, I think, goes something like this. Can't I just say that I love God and that I fear God and that I respect God and that I'm thankful for God and still achieve real happiness without having to walk in his ways? And the answer is no. I mean, that that might not be the most mind-blowing thing you've ever heard, but the, the Bible... The breathed-out word of God that equips us to do what we're supposed to do says, is that an option? Is that your question? No. That's not a possibility. It doesn't work that way. God has set his people apart and given them the best way to live. Do y'all realize that? What this is saying is that he, sets us, he set Israel apart. He sets his people apart. We, the church, are called to be his. We belong to him. And he hasn't given us less of a life than the other ones have. He's given us the fullest life you could possibly have in your brief moments on planet Earth. That's true. God has set his people apart and given them the best way to live. Well, they'll reach the highest level of joy possible on Earth. Where they will tap into a type of joy that is eternal doesn't leave us longing for more. In short, you cannot say to God, we cannot look at God and say, you created us. In the flood, you preserved us. In the exodus, you delivered us. In the wilderness, you fed us. In the exile, you sustained us. In our sin, you sacrificed your son for us. But I'm sorry, Lord, I just don't want to do what you say. That does not add up. That is not a fear of the Lord. That is not a desire to walk in his ways. To walk in any other way is to walk away from joy. Scriptures tell us that. The Psalms are full of that. To walk in any other way, to say, God, you've done all these things. I just don't want to do what you say, is to walk away from joy, to walk away from the joy giver. I would just ask, do you believe that? Like, If we can be honest this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that as a follower of Christ, God gives you the keys to a life that have greater joy than anything else? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is real, deep, abiding happiness in doing what God says? Maybe it's confusing for some of us because we think about happiness in terms of unholy things. That is one of the biggest struggles we will have in life. When you open your phones at the end of worship, you will have email advertisements of, this will make you happy, this will make you happy, this will make you happy. Try this. That didn't work, try this. That didn't work, try more of it. And, and, and it, then you'll turn your TV on and it'll get shoved down your throat, shoved down your throat, advertising, advertising. There's a way to be happy, just, just, just get more, more of this. This might be confusing to some of us because we think about happiness in terms of unholy things. And some of us, if we're honest might be embarrassed to share what actually makes us the most happy. If you had to share with this whole room what makes you the most happy, would it be pleasing to the Lord? 
Would it be embarrassing? Let me show of hands. If anyone wants it, no, I'm just kidding. That, no, that'd be awkward. So to clear up any confusion about this happiness that is expressed abundantly in this little verse, blessed, happy is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. To clear up any confusion, the rest of the Psalms explains what it looks like. When you fear the Lord and when you walk in his ways, the rest of this short little Psalm explains how that plays out in a real household with real people who have real families and real problems and real jobs. So look at verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Think about what that says. You shall eat the fruit. When you are fearing the Lord, and when you are walking in his ways, something happens. And one of the things that happens is that you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, happy, and it shall be well with you. God's children are happy in eating the fruits of their labor. This is because God's ways commend moderation. We don't get too focused on trying to figure out how to eat the fruits of everybody else's labor. We're pleased to live by the labor of our own hands, which is very different from covetousness and extravagance and even dishonesty where you try to have gain through dishonest methods. We're pleased to work and to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That's the kind of happiness that comes from fearing God and trusting him. Well, what that means is this. It is contentment. This is a biblical puzzle piece to the good life. You go to work and earn money, and you take that money, and you go and buy food and goods, and then when you partake of those goods and that food... You're happy. You don't sit and complain about what you don't have. You don't murmur over what's on the table. You are blessed by what's on the table because you fear the Lord and you walk according to his ways. And you got to go to work. You got to use hands that worked. You got to find some fruit and some yield from a ground that is, in fact, cursed. And it, and it worked. Like you, you, you did stuff and stuff got fixed or stuff got made or stuff got at least put in the right direction and you got paid for it. Christian people should really value that. Too many times Christian people are the most entitled people on planet earth. Like, we should just get the best because we're the children of God. That is stupid. That is arrogant. We are blessed by being able to work and enjoy the fruits of our labor. You go to work. You buy things and you enjoy them. For those who don't fear the Lord and who don't walk according to his ways you'll just often find that there's never enough. That's not the way it's supposed to be with God's people. Never enough. Rather than fullness at this table, I mean, imagine what we're talking about. We're talking about a family gathering around a table and being nourished by God's provision through the work. That is a godly thing. That is a life of happiness. If you were an ancient Israelite, you'd want a big farm and a big family and a table with children on it, and you just enjoy it. Uh, that's not a Jewish accent. I don't know why I did that. But that would, that would be like the good life. That would be what you were aiming at. Rather than fullness at the table, though, there's often, for those who don't fear the Lord, an intangible emptiness that will never be filled because there can never be enough. And in fact, 
Sometimes the table becomes altogether unimportant because we're too busy pursuing more. Do you care about your table? Some think that they're pursuing happiness when they're pursuing more. But that isn't happiness, it's just more. They're not the same thing. And it's clear through simple observation that more never really makes anyone happy. So the good life is going to work, eating your food, being thankful for what you have, rather than being covetous and discontent. So what else is the good life? What's the next verse say? Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, in fearing God and walking in his ways, men, your wife becomes a fruitful vine in your house. Now, before you just assume that this means that Mama Duggar is the model wife, (laughs) delivering a new child every seven to eight months, Consider the broader picture. Yes, it does mean that children are a blessing and not a curse. But the fruitful vine can mean a number of things. It can be a wife who's capable, a wife who's caring, a wife who blesses others, a wife who works hard. That's the result of fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. One commentator even noted that This maybe means that she's like that which comes from the fruit of the vine. It says your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. One commentator, I think even your ESV study Bible says, it might mean that she's like that which comes from the fruit of the vine. Like wine that makes the heart glad. So the good life is having a wife who makes your heart glad. A wife who's capable. A wife who's hardworking. A wife who's blameless. Making your heart glad. And not only that, but the happiness of children, like olive shoots around the table. This isn't some guaranteed equation. I have a number of friends who don't have any children, and it doesn't mean they don't value them. Are you kidding me? Usually they end up spoiling one of my five. But here we see this picture of children around the table being a blessing. The happiness of children, like olive shoots around your table. This doesn't simply mean that you have to have a bunch of children, though a quiver full is a blessing, according to Psalm 127. But it means this. It means that children, when you're part of the family of God, and we have like 16 baby dedications that we had a couple weeks ago, we have two new births, two new lives born into this body this week, we see that as a blessing and a promise of the future. They're full of energy reminding us of the potential that exists in life. And frankly, they keep us from becoming cynical. Christians shouldn't be unhappy, cynical people who don't believe in possibility. And our children are a reminder of that, a reminder that there's a trajectory. We don't want them to just stay the way they are. We enjoy the way they are, and we shepherd them in a direction. So in verse 4, it says, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. In short, the godly enjoy blessedness in their homes. But look at verses 5 and 6. It's not just your home. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So what we're doing is we're starting inwardly and we're moving out. 
At the beginning of this psalm, we see a person who is blessed. Blessed is the man who walks in the ways of the Lord, who fears the Lord. But then it moves out to, it's not just an individualistic endeavor. Blessed is a family. Blessed is a household that moves in this way. But then, lest we become individualistic and self-centered households, it moves out from there to Zion and Jerusalem. We have to remember that this prayer is a psalm. This psalm is a prayer. So the prayer is that those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways would experience this kind of blessedness. Zion is where the people of God gather because it's where, where God is. Do you see what's being said here? When it talks about Zion in the Psalms, it talks about where God is, and that's where the people of God gather. So this takes us beyond individualistic pursuits of happiness and past the possibility of being inward focused. To say it another way, you can expect to find blessings and happiness in the place where God's people gather, right here. Right here. When we gather together on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or for, for a special event, God is with us and we are more blessed than any people who walk on the face of planet Earth. But sometimes because we do it once a week or twice a week, it becomes so commonplace that we sort of forget what amazing blessedness is occurring when we gather. Zion, the place of God's dwelling, the place where God's people gather because God's people are the dwelling place of God. For us today, the references to the prosperity of Jerusalem and references to the peace of Israel teach us, according to one commentator, that our chief desire should be to see the church of God flourishing. So healthy families are made up of healthy people. Healthy churches are made up of healthy families. And a healthy world is made up of healthy churches. There's this theme that it starts here, it is very personal, and it works its way out. Our chief desire should be to see the church of God flourishing. Our personal enjoyment of God's grace is always inextricably joined to the welfare of the people of God. As you sit and think this morning, do I believe this? Am I living the happy life, the good life? You should also be looking around and saying, how's your life and you? How's, how's my neighbor doing? Because Isaiah 58 actually reveals that um, when you show care for other people, it, it brings joy to your life. And if this is about happiness, we should be reminded that it says, Pour yourself out for the afflicted, and your gloom shall be turned to the noonday, your darkness turned to light, in Isaiah 58. So that means that when you do stuff for other people and when you care about other people, when you pick up the phone and say, how are you doing? Hey, I heard you had a hard week. Hey, I saw your prayer request. I prayed for you. Hey, I know what your family's doing. I know it's been a crazy week. When you do that, it brings joy because it's God's design. We should care. Our personal enjoyment of God's grace is always inextricably joined to the welfare of the people of God. So I have four points of application for you this morning in this short little Psalm 128 sermon. The first application might be on a, uh, really obvious. Fear the Lord and walk according to his ways. Don't make the mistake of trying to like obtain all these other blessedness things that we've talked about without fearing the Lord and walking according to his ways. You may need to sit down as families this week and talk about what that means. Do your children know what it means to fear the Lord? Is that scary to them? Well, if so... Take them to those verses, Nehemiah and 1 John, and say, no, 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 it's not scary. It's a blessedness. It's our joy. It's our privilege. 
Application point one, fear the Lord and walk according to his ways. Application point number two, work hard and enjoy God's blessings with your family and your home. Christian people should not have homes filled with discontentment. We should not always be complaining about what's for dinner. Children, Sutton children, my children, stop complaining about what's on the table. We should be thankful. Work hard. Go to work and enjoy your work. Go to work and know that your work can be enjoyable. Some of you are like, what? I hate my job. This is mind-blowing. My world just changed. Go to work and know it can be enjoyable. Work hard and enjoy God's blessings with your family and in your home. Quit worrying about if there's going to be enough all the time. We are so filthy rich, it is ridiculous. Praise your wife. Men, we just saw what a blessing it is to have a wife who is a fruitful vine within your house. When you see that, don't take advantage of it. I don't know how many times it's just a doofus husband. I've walked in and my wife's done something and I see it and I'm like, cool, but I don't say anything. Praise your wife. Encourage her. If you're at work and she's at home with kids, that doesn't mean she had the day off. It means she worked as hard as you, maybe harder. If she has a job and comes home and continues to do the things that a wife does, you would praise her and encourage her and help her. Enjoy your children. Appreciate your children. I feel like this is very important given that we just moved into summer. Right? They're not a burden. They're not an annoying frustration. It's a joy to have children. And if you have a lot of them, one, that's partly your decision. Right? <laughs> the quiver didn't just fill itself, did it? Um, and see the blessedness that goes with that. See the blessedness of a God who says, you get to spend more time with your children over the summer. That's a good thing. If we have a dynamic where at the end of the school year, the teachers say, ugh, now you take them. And then at the end of the summer, the parents say, ugh, now you take them. That's a problem. That doesn't make our children feel like the blessings that they are, right? Appreciate your children. This is the good life. Don't be cynical. People can change. And there's great possibility in life. Happiness. Number three. Do not let the good life terminate on you. We saw it started inward, and it worked its way out from a person to a family, from a family to a church, from a church to the world. We are a church on mission. Do not let the good life terminate on you. If we believe that there is a good life, and that our households can be profoundly transformed by it, and that we regularly experience genuine happiness in the presence of God as his people gather together, why would we not be inviting more people into this? This is not a membership drive. It's saying this is where joy is found. We can't be selfish with that. Why would we not say, come, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because we believe that if you taste and if you see, you will come to the conclusion that he is good. But if we're walking around acting like the life of obedience is a drag, who's, who wants to be a part of that? Oh, let's go hang out with those people who look bummed all the time. No. The life 
of obedience is one of great joy as we fear the Lord. We experience genuine happiness in the presence of God as his people gather. Why would we not be inviting more people into it? Why would we not be eager to tell others about God and his ways so that they might fear him and walk in those ways and experience the happiness that we have the opportunity to experience? What this might look like is, I've wondered what keeps us from inviting people. And I I think that maybe you're sitting in a cubicle or you're sitting somewhere at work in an office, and maybe you hear people talking about what they're going to be doing this weekend. And maybe it's not the most holy of plans. And maybe you hear what they enjoy. Maybe you hear what's going on. And if your response to that is, I don't want to invite them because I don't think they're going to like it. If, if you hear what your neighbors are into and you think, I don't want to invite them to church because I, I don't think they're going to like it. You're buying into a lie. You should hear what they're into have a vested interest in their life. It's not going to make a whole bunch of sense to go invite a bunch of strangers to church and expect that any of them are going to come. We have to befriend people. We have to have an interest in their life. We have to see that they are incredibly interesting people because they're created as image bearers of God. And you take interest in people. It's not just notches of success. It's people. And you love them, and you encourage them, and you befriend them. And there's a point that will come in your friendship where you'll be able to say, man, I'm looking at them, and they are not having near the joy they could have. They're not having near the blessedness they could have. They're chasing blessedness in the wrong direction. They're seeking joy in things that have nothing to do with God. And you know what? I'm burdened about that. I want that to change. I want them to experience the blessedness that I've experienced. Every single one of us here is here because we were lost We were strangers from God. We were alienated from the covenant promises. We didn't know what a covenant promise was. God brought us near by Christ. If we believe that that is the life of joy and happiness, we will engage other people with it. It cannot terminate on you. Application point number three, do not let the good life terminate on you, or it's not as good as you think it is. And here's the the fourth application point this morning. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, I don't have a good life. I hate my job. I have a lot of contention with my wife. And my children are driving me crazy. If you're sitting there thinking, okay, that sounds good, but if I'm going to be honest, I don't like my job. Uh, Things are hard and struggle with the wife or the husband and my kids are just hard right now. I want to encourage you to cry out to God. Sometimes we make the mistake that just because we're supposed to expect trials and tribulation in our life, sometimes we make the wrong presupposition, a mistake, that God doesn't care about that trial. He cares deeply. The Psalms are riddled with this reality. Just because we should expect that we will one day be maligned or spoken ill of or treated poorly because of our faith. We know that we'll have trials. We know that we'll have tribulations. Do not buy into the lie that that also means God doesn't care about those trials, that God doesn't care about those tribulations. He hates injustice more than you could ever understand. And so if you're receiving injustice in your life and your life is hard and things are backwards and everything is hard, God cares about that injustice. He doesn't sit there on his throne and say, I told you it was coming. What are you complaining about? 
That is not the kind of God we have. That is not the kind of Heavenly Father that we have. He cares. He loves you. Cry out to him. The psalmist does this over and over again. The most common type of song is the lament. A lament. The psalmists were intensely honest about their emotions. Oftentimes saying things like, God, where are you? How much longer does it have to be like this, God? Why are you so distant from me? Why are you hiding your face from me, God? The prophet said things like it. Habakkuk said, God, why are you being idle? I'll be honest. Before I studied the Psalms in these last eight weeks, I saw those Psalms from David. I saw the prophets saying things like, God, why are you idle? God, what are you doing? God, why are you hiding your face? And I kind of thought, well, that's not very cool. That's kind of annoying. What a bunch of whiners. You know, if they trust that God's sovereign, they should just know that if they don't like the way things are going, they should wait quietly. That's like a stoicism and aestheticism where it just has to look a a proper way because we can't lie about our emotions. We're not supposed to. The Psalms reveal he cares about how you feel. Every single time over and over again when David says, God, why have you forsaken me? God doesn't say, shut up. He comes to them. He answers the prayers. He's present. He shows them a life of blessedness. So if that's the spot you're in this morning, cry out to God. Be honest. He can handle it. There's a theme in the Psalms, a theme that goes something like this. We complain to the person we trust. So rather than seeing complaining to God as a no-no because we are far more uh, Puritan than that, and we, don't, we believe in God's sovereignty, and we don't have anything to complain about because life is always great. That's just not true. Life is very hard sometimes. The most common type of psalm is a lament. That means that the psalmist was often like troubled by the fact that things weren't going the way that God said they would go. In the covenant promises, God says, I will give you relief from your enemies. And so when the psalmist is being bombarded by enemies, he's saying, God, what is going on? I expected relief from my enemies. We bring our complaint to the one who we trust. We adopted a little girl who came from a hard place. I remember the first time she brought a complaint to me. And it was good because it meant that she believed that I could make things better for her. She trusted me. She trusted that my presence and what I could do with her complaint, the thing that was bothering her, it meant that she believed I could make it better. How ridiculous would it, would it be in that moment for me as a father to say, you're just here for the blessings. That makes no sense. That is not a good father. Our heavenly father would never look at us and say, you just want what I give. That's ridiculous. Figure out your problem by yourself. No, no. No, we take our complaint to the one we trust. Trust in God is coupled with joy and happiness in God. The psalmist says, how much longer do I have to wait? Why are you distant from me? Rather than a stoicism and aestheticism that minimizes our emotions, the psalms contain a theme where we cry out to the one we trust. We bring our complaint to God because we trust his presence 
can change our circumstances. If you don't believe that God's presence can change your circumstances, you are entirely too cynical and unfaithful. Faith says, I, I believe that. And when you do that, there's great joy and great happiness in fearing the Lord and walking according to his ways. Let's pray.